great, uh, always a blessing when a church has children in it, isn't it? We uh, need lots of young people, and that's a blessing to have them. Mark chapter 10, Jesus was the great teacher in the Bible. I mean, he uh, taught such great truths, and sometimes uh, they were not received well. Sometimes they were not understood. And often, and I love these stories in the Bible where Jesus takes common preconceptions and just kind of turns them on their head. And so we're going to see one of those situations today. Uh, he has an encounter with a uh, young man. He's called a rich young ruler. And he chose his money over Christ. Now, every one of us has a relationship of some kind with money. A pastor answers the phone and the following conversation ensues. Hello, is this Pastor Jones? It is. This is the IRS. Could you answer a few questions? I can. Do you know a Ted Klein? I do. Is he a member of your congregation? He is. Did he donate $10,000 to the church? He will. <laughs> Here's the thing. Your relationship with money much affects your relationship with Christ, as we'll see today in this story. I want to start reading Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The Bible says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and said, saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? In verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Understandably, the Bible says, and they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? I want to talk to you today about camels, needles, and money for a few minutes. Camels, needles, and money. Father, we thank you for the time we have. I pray you'd bless the reading of your word. Help us to see something clearly from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two preconceptions that are kind of turned on their head in this passage. And that is what most people think about moral goodness and what most people think about riches and wealth. Jesus meets a rich young man. He's not only rich, he's also a man of superb moral character. Yet Jesus turns him away and he leaves rejected. It all starts right after Jesus. Now, we didn't read it, but just the verses prior, Jesus uh, had children's church, essentially there. He had a bunch of young people around him, and children were gathered around, and they were listening as he talked to them. By the way, if you think that your Savior was a somber, sad-looking, morose 
guy that we often see in the pictures. That's not who Jesus was. Children are not drawn to morose people, but they were drawn to Jesus Christ. I believe he had a smile. I believe he was upbeat. I believe he was, of course, had his moments of sadness, but I believe generally he had that type of disposition. But here then the Bible says he's going forth into the way. There came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know why this man was in a hurry, uh, but it says that he ran. He basically threw himself at Jesus' feet. Maybe he had seen Jesus with the children. Maybe that had clicked something in his heart. Uh, when Luke talks about him, it says that he was a uh, man of prominence, a ruler in the synagogue. Now, this would make this scene all the more incredible. Because people that were of religious prominence in the Jews at that time were nothing but hostile to Jesus. But here was one. He was not hostile. He came and uh, he was not even patronizing Jesus. He was eager to learn. As young as he was, as rich as he was, as influential as he was, he had the good sense to come to Jesus. He addressed the Lord as the good master. No doubt he was sincere. Uh, wanted to ask him some questions. No one is more good than Jesus, by the way. Uh, Jesus is ultimately good. In fact, it had to be the goodness of Jesus' heart, that's, uh, of Jesus' life that smote the heart of this rich young ruler. Uh, he did not come to Jesus seeking material benefit. He came, uh, he had already had wealth, he had position, he had prominence, he had influence, he had all those things that people want, but there was a big hole in his life he wasn't quite satisfied, and so he came to Jesus to find out what it was all about. Can I tell you today, friend, what the things of earth do not satisfy? The things of this world will never satisfy the longing of your soul. If you chase after the things of the world, it will be just as much uh, like a child if you've ever played with your children and blown those soap bubbles, especially out in the sunshine. They're colorful and they're bright and they float around in the air and they reach out and they want to grab it. And as soon as they get a hold of it, it's, it's gone. There's nothing there. That's much like going after the things of the world. The soap bubbles of this world are colorful. They're bright. They're exciting. But when you grab onto them, there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing that will bring any fulfillment to your heart. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. So even though this man was rich, he was still poor. Even though he was uh, a great man, he was still lost. And so the Bible says he runs to Jesus, and look at the question he asks him. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Ah, there's a contradiction in terms in that question. Did you notice it? You don't do anything to inherit something. If, if you inherit something, it's not because of what you've done. When my grandfather died a few years ago, I inherited something. It's the only inheritance I've ever received in my whole life. It wasn't a car. It wasn't a million dollars. It was a broken down, non-working shotgun. Uh, so it wasn't anything of any value, but one of the reasons I wanted it is because when I was a child, I would go on Grandpa's farm and I would use that shotgun and I'd go rabbit hunting. And many, many rabbits entered eternity uh, because I got a hold of that shotgun. And so I, it's one of the things that I just had, had fond memories. But I tell you this, I never did anything to inherit it. An inheritance isn't something you work for. 
And so he says, what must I do to inherit? Well, you can't do anything to inherit something. Uh, now, so it was a contradiction in terms, but Jesus didn't call him out on that. He's going to call him out on something else. He, he says in verse 18, why callest thou me good? There is none good, but one that is God. Now, what do you mean when you're calling me good? That's what he says to this man. Now, there's two things he can mean, and so he's going to look at both of them. Jesus said, are you talking here about relative goodness? There's several type of good we're going to look at. Are you talking about Relative goodness, that's where most of us reside. Goodness as compared to other men, other women, other people. Uh, we compare ourselves with others because all of us can find someone that we're better than. Amen? I found Brother Larry, you know. Uh, we, we all, I'm kidding, not just saying that. You know, he's trying to hide this with all of his heart, but I'm just going to expose him. His birthday's tomorrow, so you wish him a happy birthday. Amen. He turns 58 years old, and he looks good for his age. Uh, but but uh, we all find somebody we feel we're better than, right? So now, when we do that, we, this person is a great comfort to us because that person enables us to feel good about ourselves and keep our good self-image. The problem is that when we form our self-worth, by comparing ourselves to someone else, we are using the wrong measuring stick. It's like the little boy that came up to his mom. He's like six years old. And he said to his mom, Mom, I am eight feet tall. She says, eight feet tall? How would you figure that? And so he wouldn't explain. He said he laid down on the, he put his feet against the wall and he laid flat on the floor and he took a pencil and he made a mark right on top of his head and uh, so he knew exactly how far from the wall he was and then he went to the wall and he walked himself off and he was eight feet tall. We can't measure ourselves by ourselves. That's the wrong measuring stick. But that's what we do when we start to compare. That's relative goodness doesn't work. Now, maybe the rich young ruler is not talking about relative goodness. Maybe he's talking about absolute goodness. This is found only in God himself. So, basically, we are the question now Jesus is asking, are you ready to accept that Jesus is God? Why call ye me good? There's none good but God. So, we can either talk about the good that I do, that's relative goodness, or we can accept the fact that Jesus is God, absolute goodness. In other words, if he is that, then we ought to be willing to do what he says, right? If he's God. So, I love how Jesus sets people up for a decision point. He does this all the time. He's basically leading him into a position where the young man has to make a decision. If you're talking about relative goodness, not going to work. Because there's none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. No, not one. We're all sinners. We're all wicked. We're all bad. So, if you're truly saying that I am God, on the other hand, then you ought to be willing to do what I say next. All right? Which is it? We're going to see the answer to the question. Remember that question. We're going to look at it in just a second. Uh, I've got to show you something else here I think is interesting. He exposed him in verse 19. He says, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. Now, we're going to read between the lines just a little bit. And when I offer opinion, as you know, it's not inspired. Uh, it may be smart, but it's not inspired. Uh, it may not be smart also, but it is an opinion I have. Uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments are split up into two tables. 
There's four commandments. Commandments one through four is all about our relationship with God. Commandments six or commandments five through ten is all about our relationship with man. So there's two sections of the commandments, and it's interesting here that God dealt with the commandments that dealt with his relationship with man. I think there's a clue in there for us that maybe this rich man's not been so careful about how he's treated others in the obtaining of his riches. Just a thought, it's possible. These commandments are not that hard to obey, at least outwardly. But the young man's sincerity starts to unravel with what he says next. Pay careful attention to what the Bible says. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Did you catch it? There's the answer to the goodness question. He's no longer good master. He's just master. So the young man is not, okay, if there's none good but God, then I guess I got to drop good from your name, don't I? So he's not accepting Jesus as God. He simply calls him master. Now that puts us back on the track of relative goodness. Now that answers the question, which good are you talking about when Jesus talked about good? He's talking about his own goodness. My relative goodness. And so that's what we're talking about now. And he's basically saying, I'm not accepting you as God. I'm putting all the eggs in the basket of my own goodness. And he says that when he says, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Oh, really? Well, we're going to look and we're going to break it down. Jesus doesn't stop it. I love this little inserting here in verse number 21. This, this, it, it, this makes me... It just thrills my heart, but it also saddens me when Jesus, then Jesus beholding him, loved him. Oh, that's special, isn't it? Jesus isn't mad at him. Jesus loves him. He wants him to grasp the truth. He's not here to send him away. Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He, beholding him, the Bible says behold, that means to look on intently. Jesus read this young man's heart. He knew the turmoil he was going through and he knew the turmoil that his next words would bring to this young man's heart. But the truth is we have simply got to get to the place in our lives where we're honest with ourselves. And Jesus is going to get this young man there. You, we have got to be honest with ourselves. And when we say things like all these things I've kept from my youth, we're not being honest with ourselves. And so, he goes on. One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give it to the poor. It's interesting, Jesus immediately starts to talk about money. Who's talking about money? Nobody mentioned money. But then Jesus brings it up. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. The reason Jesus talks to him about money is that Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus always gets personal. He looks into your heart and he finds the unvarnished truth about you and that's what he confronts. To Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, he said, thou hast well said, I have no husband. Remember that? He says, you have five, you, thou hast had five husbands. To the Gentile woman in Mark 15, he says that it's not meat to throw uh, meat to the dogs. He said that I have only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To Saul of Tarsus, he said it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He takes this young man and he starts right out talking to him about money. He says, one thing you lack, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give it to the poor. Now what's Jesus saying here? Because friend, nowhere in the Bible 
does it talk about the requirement of voluntary poverty. We're not supposed to give. I mean, it doesn't do anything for salvation. You can give every penny you have away and it doesn't bring you any closer to heaven. And so that's not what Jesus is saying here. By the way, Jesus doesn't quote a scripture, does he? He doesn't say the Bible says, give away all your money. He doesn't say, as it says in the law. No, what Jesus is doing is he's going after this young man's idol, which happens to be money. Now understand, his wealth is not the problem. It's not wrong to have money. Amen? It's not wrong at all. It's wrong to have money as your idol. I'm going to look at the difference here. After Jesus talks to Zacharias, Zac, Zacchaeus, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus gives half of his money to the poor. But when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, which is also very wealthy, money never comes up. It's not about money, it's about the man's heart that Jesus is dealing with. So what Jesus is saying, your money has become your trust. Your money is the thing that makes you feel like you have a place in this world. It defines you. It's what makes you who you are. It has become your identity. And friend, we've got to get rid of it or you and I can't do business. That's what he's saying to this young man. In fact, Jesus said, you can't be serious. I've just given you the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandment. You've chosen to go the route of your own goodness. Now, if you say, young man that you have kept all those commandments, then prove it. Give everything you have to the poor. In other words, if you want to be good like God is good, love the poor like God loves the poor. Because do you know what God has given for the poor? He has given everything. Are you willing to give everything? He's really getting to the core of the man's heart. And then we see, and he was sad at the saying... And went away grieved. He came running and he left walking broken. Now what happened to him after that? We don't know. Maybe he became the rich man of Luke chapter 12. Maybe he became the rich man of Luke chapter 16. I hope maybe later he decided it is worth to follow Jesus and give up all my wealth. I hope that the Bible doesn't tell us. But now we see the scene kind of change. The young man has left and the Bible says Jesus is standing there looking around kind of shaking his head, and then he says, how hardly, how hardly shall those that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Now, there are two worlds that exist. We have this world and the one to come. Two systems exist. The world system with all its promises and pleasures and possessions and power. And then there's the other world system with a totally different set of values. There can be no compromise between these two worlds. The world we live in and the world to come. Now wealth and money tends to ally itself to this world and that's why materialism is such a deadly enemy of the kingdom of God. Those who have riches have a greater stake in this world than those do who are poor. That's why it's hard for those with riches to enter into the kingdom of God because their very riches attaches them to this world right here. That's what Jesus is saying. Riches tend to blind your eyes to eternal and spiritual realities by anchoring us to the wrong world. The disciples are surprised when they hear this, but not as much by what they hear next. When Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard different explanations for this, excuse me, for this verse. In fact, there's three popular ones I'll give you 
uh, the three most popular explanations for this verse. Uh, the word needle, number one, is not talking about a literal needle. Uh, Jesus is referring to a small door that's fixed to the big gate of the city. And if someone wanted to enter, it was there for convenience. If a traveler came late after the gate was shut, he could ask for entrance through that smaller door. They called that small door the eye of the needle. So the, one, the problem was that if a camel came and it was loaded down with all kinds of stuff, he wouldn't fit through the door. And so to get through that door, you'd have to unload all the things off the camel and then he could squeeze through. The picture being that if we come to Christ, we have all this stuff in the world. The only way we can really get through is if we unload the things of the world and go through the door. Sounds good, and that's one way that people uh, talk about that verse or interpret that verse. The second way is that it's a mistake in the Greek term. Now, the Greek word for camel is camelos. And the Greek word for rope is camelos. A little, just a difference is an E and an I. And as, uh, some people say, well, obviously Jesus was misheard. Really, it's not saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but for a rope to go through the eye of a needle, which is still difficult, but more possible than a camel. Let me dispel that one right here and now. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. The Bible says, For the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Your Bible has 3,566,480 letters. It has 810,697 words, 31,179 verses, 1,189 chapters, and 66 books. Every one of them is perfect. There is not a mistake in it. It is God-breathed, the Word of God. And if we're going to start pointing at the Word of God at any time and pulling out mistakes, we can throw the whole book out, in my opinion. Amen? The Bible is perfect. You say, well, all you know, preacher, the Bible does have contradictions. You're, exact, ex, you're absolutely right. The Bible is full of contradictions. The Bible will contradict your pride. The Bible will contradict your self-importance. The Bible will contradict your sin. The Bible will contradict your religion. But the Bible will never contradict itself. Amen. Never, never, never do we look at a Bible verse and say it was a mistake. So we'll, we'll knock that one out. Uh, third description is what I happen to hold on to, and that's simply that it's impossible. Now, follow me here. We get a clue in the disciples' reaction. Jesus is not saying it's difficult. He's saying it's impossible. That's why they were so dumbfounded. The Bible says they were astonished out of measure. Why? Because the disciples came from their understanding that the rich were blessed by God. By the way, often they are. Understand along with me, money is not wicked or evil. If you have lots of money, praise God for you. It's a good thing. That's a, that's, some of the greatest men of God in the Bible were very wealthy. We're talking about turning money into an idol where this young man was. So just make sure we're clear on that. The belief of that day was your, their wealth, your wealth was an indication of God's favor. In other words, if you were well off, God was pleased with you. Uh, if you are prospering financially, then it must mean you're a good person. If you are in financial distress, obviously you're not living right. We don't think so different. 
In this day and age, we still kind of feel the same way. Uh, one of the movies, I don't often like to talk about movies from the pulpit, but one of the movies I was allowed to watch as a kid uh, was The Sound of Music. Now, I'm not a huge fan of musicals because it's just weird to me that people walk around talking and then break out in song. And not only that, you have to act like it's perfectly normal. Nobody thinks it's weird. The dude is singing and they're just for no reason. But at any rate, we watched the we were able to watch The Sound of Music. Do you remember at the end of that movie when they're about to get married and everything's working out and they're singing a song together because it is, after all, a musical? You remember some of those words? Somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something good. Remember that line? That's how we think. Man, if things are happening that are great, if, if life is working out, then I must have been good. I must have done something right. People think like this. In the book of Job, that great man, that wealthy man, that godly man, he lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost everything in one day. And then his friends show up. Thank God for friends, but not like these. Eliphaz and Bilhad and Zophar. They showed up and they said, look, Job, God must not like you. You've obviously done something to offend God. You've done something bad. They come and sing the reverse of this song. Somewhere in your youth or childhood, Job, you must have done something bad. That's how we think. We, uh, and by the way, this is why the disciples were so shocked. Now Jesus tells them it's impossible for a rich person to get to heaven, while well, the impossibility is connected to the question in verse 17 when he says, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? The, the impossibility is qualified in verse 27, with men it is impossible. Our sin nature always leads us to create for ourselves idols. It just happens naturally. We have to guard against it. Uh, what is an idol? An idol is often a good thing that we put in the place of God. An idol is a good thing that we give the wrong place. We make it number one instead of making God number one. Now, money should be our servant. There's nothing wrong with money as long as it has the proper place in our life. I say again, if you are... I rejoice with people who have been successful and worked hard and built a business and made great wealth. I'm grateful for that. That's a wonderful thing. Great thing about America, isn't it? As long as that wealth does not get in the way of your relationship with God. Now, it, what the difference is really is only a matter of degree. Uh, there was once a man who went on an ocean voyage. He was carrying a large bag of gold coins. It constituted all of his net worth. Terrible storm blew up. A call came for all hands to abandon ship. The man strapped the gold around his waist and he jumped out into the, uh, into the water to get off the stinking sh uh, sinking ship. And because of the gold that was hanging on to his waist, it took him and he sank to the bottom of the sea. Now here's the philosophical question. As he was sinking, did he have the gold or did the gold have him? I think we can answer that question. Money is a fine thing. It's okay to have money as long as it does not have us. The Bible is clear that under the influence of sin, 
It is very easy for money to become idolatry in our lives. Money becomes a god. Now, how do we know that that happens to you? We know it happened to this man because Jesus hits it. How do we know if money is becoming idolatrous in our life? Well, we have several signs that I'll just give you today. There's many more we could talk about. But uh, number one, you find yourself often envying people who have more. We look at what others have and jealousy sets in. By the way, you don't have to have money for money to be your God. <laughs> I think probably there's far more people who have no money whose money is their God than people who have money whose money is their God. Let's, uh, we can dispel that one right now. So you're constantly uh, looking at what others have. Instead of being grateful for what you have, you become bitter at what you don't have. Number two, you find yourself regularly worried about it. Now, of course, there's going to be seasons in our life. We get laid off. We have a, some kind of hardship, a bad crop, or, or whatever the case might be where we go through seasons of lean. We've all been there. But if basically worrying about your money is the base note of your whole life, then there's a problem. Matthew 6.25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not better than they? Jesus is saying, don't worry, don't worry. Worry is such a wasted effort. Worry is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, doesn't take you anywhere. That's all worry will do. So number two, if you find yourself worried about it. Thirdly, if you base your relationships on it. If you base your relationships with people on the basis of how much money they have, money is probably your idol. If you are biased against the poor or even biased against the rich and you, will, you only make, and it's based on money, there's, there's a problem there. But perhaps the best test of all is the biblical test of whether or not money is your idol, your God. And that is simply in the area of giving, living open-handedly. Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. The baseline of giving in the Bible is the tithe. We're all expected to give a tithe of our income. Malachi 3, 8, the Bible says, Will a man rob God? You have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In your tithes and offerings. We rob God if we hold that from Him. Listen, we ought to teach our children early on to tithe. Remember when my children were very little, I, uh, I'm not a believer in allowances. Never got one. I just don't really believe in giving it away for nothing. So I made my kids do things for it. And I think one of the first things I did is that they brushed their teeth every day for a week. They get a dollar. I know, right? I'm generous like that. They get a dollar if they brush their teeth all week long. And I remember when I started this out, on Friday night we'd have payday and and we'd bring them to the table, and they would get a, two stacks. They would get a stack of 90 cents, and then they would get a dime on the other side. And they explain, this is what goes to the, the offering tomorrow when we go to church, or, the, or, or Sunday when we go to church, and this is for years to keep. You've got to teach tithing. I think it starts, should start early on. You say, I can't afford to tithe. I say, yes, you can. I believe 100% with all my heart that it is not whether you can afford to tithe, you cannot afford not to tithe. 
the, you say, listen, uh, this, I've, I've issued this challenge many, many times to many people throughout my ministry. Try it out for six months. If you're not in the habit of tithing, try it out for six months and see if God doesn't open the doors of blessing on you. Say, preacher, how can you be so sure? Well, it is the only time in the whole Bible that I have found that God issues a double dog dare, if you will. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be meat in my house and prove me herewith. Or double dog dare ya. And see if I will, this is saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. One thing I've learned in my life is God's shovel is bigger than yours. You start shoveling his way, and he start, and this is not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that at all. Not, get, not talking about, uh, you know, you give God a dollar, he'll give you a hundred. Not talking about that at all. I'm simply saying, you honor God, and he will not dishonor his promise to you. I promise you, it's a blessing. Don't cut off God's pipeline of his blessing by making money an idol. Statistics tell us that the less money you have, the more you give away. I found this shocking, and I looked into it, and it's actually true. It, the data backs it up. If you make 15000 or less, you tend to give, or the average, this is just national average, uh, people give 3 to 4% to charity. If you make over 100000 a year, uh, people, national average, give less than 1% to charity. That's uh, striking to me. But that's the way it's always been. It was a Wednesday night evening church service, and a very wealthy man stood up to give his testimony, and he said, most of you in here know that I'm a millionaire several times over, and God's been very good to me. I look at everything God's given me as his blessing on my life, and I can point to the very minute that that change and that turn was made in my life. I was a young man. I had, uh, I had just worked a, a, that day, uh, mowed a lawn, and I had a dollar bill in my pocket. I went to church that night, and a missionary spoke about the field he was going to, and I had an opportunity. I wanted to give something, but I realized I was either going to give nothing or I was going to give everything that I had because I only had a dollar. And he said, I made a decision. I decided to give everything to God, and I put that dollar in the plate. I believe God has blessed that decision. That's why I'm a rich man today. Well, he finished up, and it was clear everybody was very moved by his story. But one little old lady, as he was sitting down, leaned over and said, that's a wonderful story. Dare you to do it again. The simple reason that people give less when they have more is because money becomes an idol. If it's our idol... We hold on to it. If God is our God, then money does not matter so much. And so Jesus shows this young man how he can get free from the idolatry of money. He doesn't just say, give away all your money. He says, give away all your money and follow me. That's the key there. He's saying, I want you to know that in me you have everything you need. That's what we have in Christ. For all we know, by the way, for all we know, this young man, if he'd have said yes, Jesus could have treated him like God treated Abraham in the Old Testament. Remember in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. I want you to kill your son on the altar, sacrifice him. 
Abraham's looking through his Bible. This doesn't make sense. I don't find that anywhere. But God, if you tell me I have to do it, I'll do it. And they go up the mountain and he lays Isaac out on the altar. He ties him up and he lifts the knife and God says, Stop! Now I know Isaac's not your God. I'm your God. You don't have to go through with that after all. I don't know if that would have happened or not, but the point is not the money. The point was this young man's heart. Jesus upsets his preconceptions, and ours too. He shows us here that nothing is more spiritually dangerous than to be morally impeccable. This young man, I've done all these things, but what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, if he's done all these things, why is he searching? Because even moral people know at the core of their heart that something is missing. So they come to Jesus, what else must I do? What have I left out? And they expect Jesus maybe to add just a little something just to help them get over the hump and still make it on their own. But friends, salvation is not a matter of addition. Salvation only comes when I realize I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I am wicked. My righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I can't do it on my own. There's nothing, there's no amount of works that I can do to get myself there. And so I must trust Christ completely. We have to realize that. Salvation is not a reward to the righteous. Salvation is a gift to the guilty. Praise God. So Jesus says, you think you're obedient? Think you've obeyed all the Ten Commandments? Well, let me tell you. Mr. Rich Young Ruler, all the Ten Commandments can be summarized in two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you really love God that much, and you love your neighbors just as much as yourselves, then why don't you give everything away to your neighbors and prove the point? Well, again, Jesus is trying to demonstrate that He should be our everything. Nothing between me and my Savior. Does God have first place today in your life? That's the question. Does God have first place today in your life? If God came to you today and said, I want you to give away X, would you do it? Whatever, fill in the blank. Would you do it? I, speaking personally, I have one of, one of my most prized possessions. I'm talking about physical possessions, not counting family and those things obviously ranks way higher. One of my most prized earthly possessions is my motorcycle. I enjoy it. It's something I enjoy a lot. And about once a year, I have this come to, come to Jesus meeting with the Lord in my own heart. And, and I tell the Lord, if, if you ever want me to get rid of that, I just want to say I'm willing. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not eagerly willing but I, I do, I'm being honest with you folks today. I want to stand before you and before God and say, I really, I want to surrender that. And I want you to surrender what's the most dear to you. Surrender it. God has to be first place. If not, we're like this young man who was, who was moral, he was good, he was sincere, but he wasn't ready to make Jesus number one. And Jesus cannot be number two in our life. He just can't be. We cannot offer our works and... Our riches and, it's got to be all Christ. We have to remember that. 
Verse 21, he says, Jesus has come, take up the cross and follow me. He refers to the fact that he's taking up a cross. He's saying, basically, I have to be your true treasure. My life poured out on the cross must be your treasure. I have to be your righteousness. I have to be your wealth before God. You see, the gospel never comes in and adds something. The gospel completely replaces. It does what you cannot do. It uh, gives you what you cannot earn. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's why Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, I have a few theological questions. Jesus says, Ditch your questions. You must be born again. Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter. You're flawed, Nicodemus. Your morality is not good enough. Your goodness is not enough. Dear friend, we have to understand that today. Jesus must be our all, not just an aspect of our life. If you're here today and you don't know whether you're going to heaven or not, you're not sure. I'd like to know. I hope I go. That's the only way we get there, by recognizing Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. And we accept Him into our hearts and lives. Dear Christian, Jesus must be your all. Have you made Jesus your all? Is He number one in your life? Let's have every head bowed.